gosh, do you have like, oh God, I don't even want to know. I, I know. The, immediately I thought of like, you know, the story of Dory and Corey from um, Paris is Burnt. Oh God. Oh my God. Does he have like mummified people like in trunks? Oh my God. This podcast really took a turn. I don't want to think about it. I'll edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> did I answer the question? I don't think I answered the question. I don't question. think you did. Hi, thanks for checking out the trailer of the Flop Redeemer podcast. I'm Barry, and along with my co-host Jason, we'll be talking about the songs that failed to top the charts, but that we think deserve a second listen. These songs were critically despised, commercially rejected, or even worse, ignored completely. Some of these songs were so universally reviled, they had us questioning our own taste in music altogether. But even though they may have been dead on arrival, maybe, just maybe, we can breathe new life into them. To kick things off, Jason and I got together to talk through some of our ideas for Flop Redeemer. What we're aiming to do, what kinds of songs we're going to cover, and how we're going to approach this topic as a couple of fans just trying to have a good time. How would you describe what we're trying to do with this podcast? So what I would say is Flop Redeemer is sort of just an exploration by a couple of fans about why certain songs that we love were not commercial successes in their time. I think that it's our opportunity to really champion some of these songs that really never made it into people's ears at the time that they were released. And examining what was going on at the time, what mi- timing misfires, what gossip items were going on. Yeah, and just kind of give a give a little bit of context in terms of his- not only history, because I think that there's some historical information that could be interesting in regards to these songs, but also just like pop culture history. Because I think that um, where our personalities kind of intersect is really in pop music as a vehicle for pop culture itself, you know? And I think that that's a lot of times like the type of stuff that we really get excited to talk about. Intersectionality of pop. Yeah, very, very timely. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully it's fun because it's not, it's not that serious. We're not trying to be like super serious. (laughs) We're not trying to like you know, go to battle for these songs, right? Like, we're just, these are songs like Everything Fades Away, a Mariah Carey B-side that, like, you literally cannot find anywhere. It is does not exist online. And the only place I have it is in my memory because it was B-side on a single that I had for the Hero uh, single. That, that often played a factor for me, is when something becomes so inaccessible that you really just have this... Like kind of like mind's eye recollection of a certain song that you just never got to hear enough. It didn't have time to get played out. It didn't have time to just kind of exhaust its course in pop culture. And it kind of makes, for me anyway, it makes my desire to hear those songs kind of greater. So maybe my actual love for the song is exaggerated by the fact that I didn't get to hear that song very much. And maybe like there's some of these songs that like, even in this era of, music streaming, music downloads, some of these songs are like, for one reason or another, just not available, you know? You'd have to go to like a used record store sometimes to find these songs now. Cause yeah. for whatever reason, you know, they don't have streaming rights or they don't have mm-hmm. downloadable digital rights. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, it can often be that factor that really amplifies yeah. a song, a love for a song in my mind. Well, anyway. and I think that that's a good point that you make that, you know, not just that like we have it in our minds, but 
you know, I, I think we're sort of, we sort of get lulled into almost like a sense of security that like everything that we like is available. You know, even if we don't have it, we could get it. And, you know, you look at something, even someone even as popular as Aaliyah, we're like, mm. you can't, you like for a long time, you couldn't hear it. Like I had, you know, kind of gotten rid of some of my, some of oh, my yeah. records because I was like, oh, I'll be able to get it online now. And then, you know, because of a licensing dispute, she doesn't exist. You know? Yeah. It's crazy. I, I, I always look for Aaliyah songs and I'm like, mm-hmm. I cannot find Aaliyah's music. I need to find, I actually think I still have a copy of her uh, best of on CD. I, I don't have a CD player anymore though is the problem. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I have it. Well, you do. It's in your car. Oh. But if I wanted to digitize, if I wanted to digitize it at this point, like none of my computers have CD players anymore. No, and I know, and until like like you'd need a separate that what CD drive or whatever it is that you need. Because I was thinking about that too. I mean, I bought the Sister Act two soundtrack from eBay (laughs) because it's not available either. And so, like the only time I can listen to Oh Happy Day or Lauren Hill singing, you know, Joyful Joyful, is in the car. Yeah, it really bums me out because yeah, we don't have one here. My next question is, for the purposes of this podcast, how do we define what a flop is? Basically, like, what are the criteria that we're going to use to say this song, we're covering this song because it's a flop. It's a flop because... I think the way we're looking at flop is we're defining it by what did success mean for that particular artist at that moment in time? And did Mm -hmm. it meet? or exceed those expectations. If it fell below them, I think it's a flop. I mean, there there may be some cases, instances where we're talking through, you know, some tracks and it's like, you could say they were moderately successful, but they weren't like, they weren't what everyone wanted. And, and you know, commercially, they weren't considered a, a, a flop. I think, I think if it's something like that, if it um, sort of derails the, that artist's chances Mm-hmm. Uh, of continuing to explore that sort of musical direction, if that's something they were doing, um, if it if it um, yeah limits their opportunities, um, and I would also say like yeah truly if if they if we just don't know about them anymore, I mean you know we go back to we the 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 genesis of this project was the glitter soundtrack right, and it's like mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes that album doesn't exist for Mariah Carey correct right like it just it just doesn't exist yeah and um, the other day, I was listening to a Mariah radio, and uh, last night a DJ Save My Life came on, and I was like, "This was, I mean, these are really well produced, fun songs, you know." And there's no reason that we shouldn't be enjoying them now. And I mean, talking about glitter, it's that's one of those albums that was just so hard to get a hold of for so long, and it's only, you know from where we're recording now, it's only been about a month since she actually, I, I wonder if she actually had to like purchase back the rights to those recordings and those masters to get them on to Spotify because glitter on Spotify is like copyright 2001 Mariah. Like, Oh, it's just her name. It's not Virgin. All cat. Wasn't it? Was no. it Island or was it Virgin? Cause remember she got bought out of her contract. Yeah. That was her first release on, I think it was Virgin. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's why it hasn't been available for streaming in all these years, but yeah, no, I thought it was really interesting. Like, Oh, like she must've had to purchase back all the rights so that she could do with her music, what she wanted to do, you know? Cause I could imagine that like once your relationship with, 
your label or your management or whoever owns your masters, once that relationship goes south, it can probably be really difficult for you to regain ownership or any ability to profit from those in any way or even just to let people hear paul mccartney i mean you know right and taylor swift jojo i know it happened to you know jojo actually had to go back and re-record all of her albums because she couldn't get the rights to the um the masters so it's interesting it was interesting to me that a workaround for her side note side conversation i'll end it here but (laughs) you know an interesting a workaround for her was that in 2018 she she re-recorded her first two albums and then like the singles that never belonged to an album after that. Like we, we had a conversation last week during our friend's birthday party. There was a zoom call and we were talking and the subject of Jojo came up and it was really funny because you and I, we know Jojo. We've known Jojo we know for story. forever. We know the story. We know the difficulties they she's had. We know what she's come up with. And I think our friends kind of just laughed and were like, who cares about Jojo? Yeah. <laughs> And and so I think it's an interesting opportunity. How do I mean it's a good question like how do you how do you make someone who doesn't give two shits about Jojo care about Jojo? And I think that's our challenge. <laughs> our guiding light will be how do you make someone who does not care about Jojo care about Jojo? Yeah, I mean our sub the subhead of this flop redeemer give two shits. Yeah. I mean god cuz I care about Jojo so much. I worry about her so much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I worry about her. Oh, but, I do. Um, I do. You know, I. She seems fine. I don't think that we're excluding kind of like deep cuts from consideration. Yeah. You know, because I think that even when we talk about album releases being unsuccessful, those albums being unsuccessful impacted how often you heard kind of like track nine off of that album. And sometimes that's where you really find like your own personal connection to those songs. Those songs may not be the bangers. They're not the pop hits, but that's kind of like where you, where you find, you know, obviously songs that were worthy of being put on an album. How could an angel break my heart by Tony Braxton, like track, whatever eight or nine on secrets paula abdul spellbound i think it's track nine or track (laughs) ten all right tonight actually a terrible song but when i was when i was a kid that was my jam all right tonight check it out (laughs) it's terrible well now i will now i I listened to it as an adult i was like oh my god this song is terrible but i this is not good but i but but i still love it so is that a flop or like in that case, is that like a subcategory of flop? <laughs> like, what is that? Yeah. I mean, here's, here's the way that I think about it is that in terms of a deep cut, I feel like it is relevant to bring up, you know, tracks that were never singles, but they definitely came from an album that maybe no one ever heard about. So no one ever had the opportunity to dig deep into that and appreciate it in the way that maybe we have been able to just in in doing digging around you know in listening to i've been listening to a lot of albums that i had just kind of disregarded when they first came out because i didn't like the single you yeah know, I, I think that that's the impact yeah. of a, a, a failed single got it got it so maybe it's like some deep cuts from albums that failed for whatever reason or just a track that can help you understand the artist a little bit better but no one knows yeah. it because I think that there's there's definitely a place for where this this the flop single from a flop album is a song that we both hate. Mm-hmm. 
but it kill and it kills the success, the chances of that album. And then you're like, oh, but that was actually a good album. They why did they release that as the single? You're not sure. Yeah. Cause I think we we definitely live in a time when if your first single flops and they had already kind of put a lot of promotional budget into your album, into your single, they might just they might just, you know. Cut, pull the plug. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so then, you know, when we're talking about flops, I think it sounds like we're talking about, you know, not only those songs that were not commercial successes or that may have not reached the heights that a, that a, that a artist may have reached previously, but also those that, you know, for whatever reason, don't get enough attention. And so doesn't give people the opportunity to really understand an artist and like their full range um, and appreciate them you know, in a way that I think that, that we think that they should. Yeah. I think that one, one thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around too is, um, I think that there's a certain point at which songs will venture more into like undiscovered gems. Mm -hmm. We live in a time when music is getting released so often and so easily because those barriers to releasing your own music are so low now that there's a lot of music that just never you never have an opportunity to hear. And I feel yeah. like that's actually more of an undiscovered gem. And I think one of the things that I think we should always be addressing in the songs we discuss is like, what was the potential that this song had to be heard beyond, you know, a niche audience, basically? I mean, I'll give an example, Betty Who, that I saw there was a couple of Betty oh. Who songs going on in there. And my, my initial instinct is like, why would I have ever heard about Betty Who? What opportunities was she ever actually given for her to be considered a flop versus an undiscovered gem, you know? Okay, so this is my last kind of catch-all question. Is there anything that you think listeners should know? About me or about the... Uh... Just in general. Anything that's not covered in like, what is this podcast about? Or what? how are we defining a flop? Mm. My primary thing that I think people should know is that we're not experts. I was just going to say that. It's not, we're, we don't have, we're not, we don't have an encyclopedic knowledge. I mean, I think we have uh, a higher knowledge than, I want to say some, and in some cases, most, um, but like certainly not... You know, certainly we're not Wikipedia. Yeah. We're not a Wikipedia entry. And like we'll do our best to to really try and 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 have our research done on each of these songs and just like what was going on and and really speak from some some sort of like position of knowledge. But yeah, we're not experts. Yeah. And truly, like we are not here. We come from a place of love with all of these songs. Um, so even as we talk about them and even as we discuss them you know, from the standpoint of being flops, um, we mean that with love. Yeah, that was actually my second point too, was that the term flop can be very triggering or very evocative of a negative connotation. And, you know, but I think that what we're trying to do here is really flip that on its head a little bit. And yeah, I don't think we would be talking about anything here if we didn't genuinely have some kind of love or interest for it. Yeah, I think it's a it's a loving examination yeah. of songs that we really feel deserve more credit and artists that we love who we think deserve more credit. Yeah. You know, we want to prove that she's got the range. <laughs> right? Like- <laughs> well, yeah, cuz I think that I think that we are looking at covering some artists that a lot of people may have never heard of or artists that people may think were one hit wonders but actually did go on to do other things. 
um, artists such as Kelly Rowland. Oh, Kelly! I mean, Kelly. She, you know, she's very popular in Europe. She is, uh, girl. She's very popular in my house. She's doing. I think she's doing pretty well for herself. She's got some hosting gigs. She's got, you know, she's got a good personality for TV. She's a very good like TV host. Very gen. She's she's she, she seems so genuine. I love her. Is she okay? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I love her too. I love her too. I love her too. We watched Homecoming again on Netflix the other night. And uh, I just, you know, I love seeing when she pops up um, and she does her thing. Oh, Beyonce Homecoming, not Ju- not Julia Roberts Homecoming. Yeah, Beyonce's Homecoming. Okay. No, no, not now Janelle Monet Homecoming. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, no, not that. Not that. Okay. I'm not into that. Okay. I've actually never watched Homecoming. Maybe I should Maybe I should watch that. You mean the Netflix? Yeah. The, the, uh, not, neither. I've it watched neither. so good. Okay. It is so good. I, and, and I, you know, again, this is a, this is a tangent. Um, and, you know, at the risk of sounding like a, a a member of the beehive, there were a lot of things that I didn't understand the first time I watched it. Because it, what she does is she basically, it's basically a homecoming pep rally, mm-hmm. right? For it, like, like um, as if it would take place at like a HBCU, mm-hmm. historically black college. And there were some things that when I watched it the first time, Without sort of any other context, I hadn't read anything about it. I thought it was cool. I thought it was really cool, but I didn't understand the significance of all of the things. And then yeah. when I went through and I, I kind of read, you know, black uh, pop culture critics and writers talking about what it meant to them yeah. to see that culture um, in such a white space as Coachella is. Yeah. It really drove home for me, like, I mean, the power of this woman, right? And and just and also like I I felt. It was such a great opportunity for me to be exposed to a culture that I had not really had a lot of yeah. um, exposure to and and to really understand and appreciate, you know, a very specific part of black American culture that I needed to know more of. And, you know, I, you know, I do have friends who, you know, have have feelings about Beyonce one way or the other and haven't haven't watched it just because, you know, the oppressive machine that is Beyonce's sort of pop status mm-hmm. or icon status and all of the things that come with it. Um, but I do really think that if you haven't seen it, you should watch it yeah. because I mean, what she does is amazing. And, 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 and the people that she's able to highlight and um, give spotlight to in that show are really great. Cool. They highlight a lot of people in that show. Yeah. No, I'll def- I think I should, I should definitely check it out. I think that like the reason that I haven't really watched it is I don't really watch like documentary type of stuff yeah. or like yeah. not not like nonfiction programming. But what it sounds like mm-hmm. is cool about that. And I think it's very timely. And I think it's a conversation we're having more and more now is the idea of like basically being a black voice for black audiences. Yes. Right. And we're doing that more and more with, with every, with every community. Right. We hope that we're making Asian American voices for Asian American audiences and LGBT uh, voices for LGBT audiences and not feeling the need to structure our stories in a way that's palatable to yes, essentially white audiences, but American audiences mm-hmm. or other audiences. Mm-hmm. Cause even as an Asian American, like, I mean, and, and maybe we have that perspective being minorities ourselves that, I mean, when we hear other minority voices, we don't expect that voice to cater um, their presentation to us. 
as Asian Americans. Yeah. I don't I don't expect like you know a black voice to try and structure their their black experience so that I as an Asian American can understand it. But for so long, there was this idea that like if you want to have a a black character on television, an Asian American character on television. Uh, you know, a Latinx character on television, they had to fulfill a certain role or there could o- they could only be so many of them, you know? And so the viewpoints that we were getting on minorities were just so outside of those communities themselves. You know, I definitely feel yeah. that way as an Asian yeah. American, right? That like, yeah, you don't see a lot of Asian American, for me, Asian American men in the media represented in a way that like even makes sense to me it's i don't get it's funny for for me for so long i i don't think i ever got angry about it per se right i think there is cause to be angry about it but almost the way that i think about a lot of asian american characters particularly that appear in the media or appear in pop culture or music anywhere Mm. is it's almost like a big nothing to me yeah. When I see, I mean, I think that's changing a yeah. lot. I mean, um, lately, particularly with it's very meaningful to me when I see kind of like Asian American characters on on television that I realize like, oh, there was actually no reason for this character to be Asian American. They just cast an Asian American person in this role because that to me is more relatable to see an Asian American person acting like a normal human being. Yes. Not being some immigrant shop owner who's rude to people. You know, and I'm of the mind that when I see those portrayals, I raise my eyebrow, but, and then I just think like, you know, it's a big nothing to me. What a waste. Um, And I think we're, but I think we're hitting a turning point on that where a lot more people are waking up to like, why am I okay with these portrayals? Like, why am why am I okay with this viewpoint when we're living in a time where more people should have access to the platforms that allow them to tell their own stories in the way that they want them to be told, you know? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is interesting to see um, that happening and that happening more and more. I feel like we um, just took a big sidestep away, too, from our topic, but... <laughs> we did, we did, but I think I think there's an opportunity here. It's a good conversation. It is, it is, but I think I think it I think, but I think it's illustrative. I mean, I, I you know, I I do think that like as we do this podcast, there are going to be tangents, and I yeah. think you know going back to the idea of intersectionality, like these don't exist in a vacuum, and there are there are going to be some songs, there are going to be some artists, and some examples where the world wasn't ready for this artist to have this conversation yeah. in this way. Right. And and not even the world. It could be their actual audience just wasn't yeah. ready. And I think, you know, in talking in talking about Beyonce's homecoming, it was funny because she just released a single called Black Parade. I don't know if you've heard it. I, I saw it. It's on my queue. I haven't listened to it yet. I've been I've been It's really good. Okay. It's so so what's interesting is as Beyonce sort of leaned into her blackness in the last few albums, I really feel that like what she's putting out is art. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's it's this is her artistic expression in a way that like I love um, crazy in love <laughs> be day uh, me myself and I or crazy in love. Yeah, whatever. I love them all. But it's not art in the same way. Oh, right? yeah. Like it's it's not it does. It doesn't have that. And, you know, had she come out with these things at that time, it would not have worked. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've seen this sort of evolution and we've seen her kind of talk about it. And I think what's really interesting, you know, with Homecoming was, you know, kind of like what you were saying, 
part of the reason I didn't get it at first was because it wasn't for me, mm-hmm. right? Like there were signals and stuff in there that were love letters to the black audience. They knew what it was. They started singing a song. And I am ashamed to admit, I did not know the black national anthem, right? Lift every voice and sing. I did not know that song. And she does this one little, she does this one, there's this one portion where they kind of break into it. And, you know, talking to, you know, black friends or just reading about people who, when they heard that, what that meant. And like, it was an opportunity for me to really just kind of learn mm-hmm. right and 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 i think you know people go two ways like there are some people who are just like so furious that you dared to make something that wasn't for them yeah. and they weren't centered in it and they get mad and they turn it off and then there are others who like you know it fascinated me and i was just really i was blown away by the opportunity to to not only enjoy this thing but to to really like have a better understanding and appreciation for this aspect of of the culture that's around us that I just don't have visibility to all yeah. the time. So, you know, I think I think it does relate to sort of what we're talking about. I mean, there's, you know, we're a lot of these songs and things that we're talking about, like, they're not necessarily like from yesterday. <laughs> like some of them are from the, you know, the early 2000s. And I think what's interesting is, you know, as 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 we go about our lives, like the early 2000s really were a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and it was such a different time. And you listen to some of these things and you're like, I how did this get made? <laughs> like what was this, you know? Um and they just sound different. To draw that conversation back to what we're potentially going to be talking about, when you're talking about like black voices for black audiences or any kind of minority voice for for their own audience basically, I kind of wonder how much decision making is made on the record label side in terms of basically saying like, you know what? Like, Oh, we already have a Beyonce that's covered. Yeah. Like you're not like, we already have this black female artist. Basically we don't need another one, you know, which, which I, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a, that's, that's kind of a sentiment that you get a sense of from the entertainment industry that there's just these quotas. They're like, Oh, you know what? Like, it's okay. We've we've got our sassy Latina character. We don't we don't mm-hmm. need any more. And I kind of wonder mm-hmm. how often that happens within music that you know, you might represent something that on the surface seems very similar musically, but you actually have your own perspective. You actually have your own, you know, artistic vision for your career. Yeah. But then to try and have to justify that or explain that to people that are in charge of record labels or people that are in charge of releasing music to the public. Like, I wonder how much of a challenge that is because I I often wonder that when you have large crops of artists that kind of are given similar opportunities to break through and several of them just kind of fall away in the de- was it the destiny's F- destiny fulfilled era mm. like there was like a tribute concert to destiny's child do you remember this? i think it was on bet when they were um it was when they were breaking up wasn't it yeah it was in the whole destiny fulfilled yeah. like it was kind of their farewell tv special and i remember mm-hmm. at that time that they kind of did this tribute segment where they were introducing the next wave of R&B songstresses. I remember this. I remember And they this. came they came down the stairs singing um Lose My Breath and it was Amory, Tierra Marie mm-hmm. and Rihanna. Yes. 
Yes. And obviously Rihanna has had this huge success in her career. Mm -hmm. Amory had kind of a few good hits, but has largely like not had as much breakthrough success. Yeah. And then Tierra, I feel like Tierra Marie, like I love her voice. I don't even remember her. If you go back and you watch that performance of Lose My Breath, I feel like Tierra Marie and Amory kind of blew Rihanna out of the water vocally. They did. I, I remember not only vocally, but like Rihanna could not dance. <laughs> I remember that very specifically. And I remember like, I, I remember when Rihanna first came out, I was like, this is a one hit wonder. Like people, they're foisting this woman on us. And I was like, she can't dance. She could never sing live because no. they would always put her out on like some like, you know, award show or whatever. And I was like, it's weak. Yeah. And and I mean, they hadn't found the formula that worked and she hadn't found it. Yeah, there's definitely like she kind of grew into, I think, where the power of her voice really lies. Yeah. You know, like I in those early albums of like, why are we trying to get a ballad from Rihanna? Her voice never sounds right singing those songs. What's the song that she's like, I don't want to. The one where she's like talking about having a gun and shooting someone. Oh, uh, yes. But it's like a it's like a it's like a song where she's basically saying, like, I cheated on you. It's almost like I like Yeah. That song, like that he oh, unfaithful. That's that's <laughs> Yeah. Well, and isn't that the one that has like three different two different demos? And there's like an Usher version and a brandy version. Oh, I've never heard and, that. And like I I remember downloading I remember downloading and again, this listeners, apologies. <laughs> This is a long time ago. I remember downloading it. So I don't remember if this is the song or not, but like you could download the other versions of them and someone had mixed them together. Oh. So each of them had a verse Wait, or a, and then they put them together. Cause that was like a Neo wrote that song, right? Yes. I think maybe I had heard like yes. a Neo demo of that song. And that song, that's a, there's a Brandy version too. God, I can't, I actually I can't imagine. Correctly. I'll have to look. I wonder if that still exists. Cause I can't imagine any, any of those voices working out. I think it's actually on the laptop that, again, you gave me a long time God, ago. you still have that? I have so many of your things here. Yeah, I have my that. hair dryer. <laughs> yeah, your hair dryer from like 20 years ago, um, which for a long time I was using until last year. Hey, if it works, you know. <laughs> I mean, it worked. I mean, I actually couldn't use a real hair dryer because I only knew how to use the stubby travel. Oh, uh, once you get like one of those, uh, like a real nice hairdryer with one of those like flat uh-huh. attachments that like focuses mm-hmm. the energy. Styling yeah. your hair is so much easier. I, I, uh, I, I beg to differ. I could not keep it far enough away from my head because it was like too much. It was too much nozzle. I think because like I had been watching my hairdresser just do it for a while that I was like, gosh, like why can't I get my hair to do, you know, you mm-hmm. get the round brush and you're like focusing it anyway. Well, I mean, we'll talk about the flop that is my hairdryer later. <laughs> What were we talking about? Rihanna? Oh, yeah. But oh, so like in that in that crop of Tierra Marie, Amory and Rihanna and thinking like, oh, like they were debuting these three artists simultaneously, trying to set them up as equivalents, which they're really not, but also to like make them like the heirs to Destiny's Child somehow. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of wonder if the lack of success for Tierra Marie and Amory had anything to do with like a uh, an unspoken quota around well these are the, we're going to only push a certain number of black female artists to pop audiences i think it's a, i think it's an interesting thing to explore i think i i think that that happens for sure i will also say though and I, it will come up when we do talk about kelly Rowland down the road um 
I love Kelly Rowland. I loved her sort of her dance. Her second lead vocalist of Destiny's Child. Second lead vocalist. <laughs> she performed after I think after Motivation had come out, and you know she'd had oh no this was before Motivation, but like she'd had um, Commander. She'd had rose colored glasses. She'd had. Um, what was that? The work was work. No, what was the f- first song that was it? Love. Um, I'm sorry. It was the David Guetta song. Oh, when love takes over. When love takes over. She'd had. She'd had the those... gays. The gays love the when love takes exactly. Over. So she performed at Pride, L.A. Pride, and we went to go see her, and she sounded fantastic live. But I will tell you, her live show lacked any kind of charisma. Like she got lost on stage. It was. Yes, she she sounded great. She did all the songs, but like we had seen Beyonce earlier, I think, or you know, in the in the previous year, we watched her B Day tour live. You know, she'd been tearing it up all over the world on different award shows, and there is an unmistakable star quality to Beyonce that like Kelly doesn't have. It's hard. It is hard. Maybe Kelly didn't. Maybe Kelly didn't run on the treadmill in her uh, <laughs> high heels enough. I'm pretty sure they all had right, to. I'm, maybe maybe Beyonce just kept going, you know, because I will say that like a huge part of like Beyonce, her performance quality, at least from my perspective, is that she can maintain a vocal performance level while doing mm-hmm. a lot of different crazy mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And that's that is an amazing feat. Yeah. And I always felt with Kelly Rowland more so that her live voice it couldn't stand up to a lot of extreme movement mm-hmm. or it hits in a different part of her voice. Yeah. And I feel like you hear a lot more of her. like somehow, I mean, it's funny because with Beyonce, you can hear the struggle. You can hear the movement of her body when she's singing live. It's not like that totally fake baked in mm-hmm. live lip syncing track. Mm-hmm. You can hear her body moving, but she manages to keep it like aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. Well, and which I, yeah. I feel like that's a major problem for other ar- other artists that try to sing and dance yeah. live and be entertaining yeah. and engaging. Yeah, you lose all of the finesse. Yeah, and you know, like yeah. it's one thing to be in a studio recording and having a microphone and standing and being able to prepare your breath and record over and over, mm-hmm. but then to be able to replicate that in one shot while you're also walking around trying to acknowledge people around you. And I can, I can only imagine yeah. that it must be so challenging. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure. I'm also a hundred percent sure they got paid millions of dollars to do that and figure it out. But at the <laughs> same time, like what, what I think is interesting and, and the real reason I kind of bring it up is, you know, listening to a destiny's child song, you realize how much Kelly is in the vocal mix, right? Like she's, so many things that you think of with a Destiny Child song, like yes, Beyonce mm-hmm. is present, and yes, she was the lead, but like so much of what you consider to be the song is Kelly, and yet yeah. she cannot visually carry off the lead performance. I think that was actually like the brilliance of the original Destiny's Child lineup mm. is that I th- I feel like the three other members of Destiny's Child, Kelly Rowland, uh, Latoya Luckett, and Latavia Roberson, they were all great blenders yeah they all had just super strong steady voices that beyonce was able to just kind of riff over Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the idea of mariah singing on top of nine mariah (laughs) background singers the brilliance of destiny's child and those those tracks is that the other voices and i get you know even beyonce's voice like i think that they were all trained to blend with each other from a very young age 
I feel like Michelle Williams never. No, she didn't. Never shows up that loudly, like in the blend. No. It, no. Because you would hear her voice. Like the, the actual just quality of Michelle Williams' voice is so different. Well, because whenever she shows up, yeah, whenever she shows up on a bridge, you're like, oh, is this the first time you've been singing? Because yeah, because if you sounded like that the whole time, I would have known. Yeah, you would you would have heard when she's yeah. singing like in the back of yeah. the chorus. Like, it, but that's what I mean. So much of it is Kelly, you know, and it's it's interesting. Because I think that about Latoya Luckett too. Like, I think that there's there's a Latoya Luckett song that I I think of in terms of is um, that the, wanting to talk about on the this baseball book. bat one swing bata bata. Yes, she ain't she ain't got she ain't got shit on me. Oh, that's right, that's right. That was a weird song, but I love. I that love song. that song. I mean, hey, look, let's add that to the list. Yeah, it's on my list. It, it you know, it, for her, I think it was just such a curveball to her audience. Like, I think that prior to that point, she had been angling her solo career so solidly towards just like pure R and B soul, you know. And that song was trying to be a little electro, a little dance. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an emotive song in any way. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into that someday. So okay, that that was the that was the anything we think listeners should know portion of this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like we're not we're not experts. We're trying, and we will go on tangents. Yeah, we're we're going on go on tangents. We're approaching this as fans and enthusiasts. These are hopefully what we can bring to this is our opinions. Like I think that we're going to do our due diligence in terms of getting our facts straight, making sure that. Um, you know, we're researching all the facts and dividing fact from rumor and rumor from conjecture and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, like we're not trying to do some kind of like, uh, you know, journalistic breaking news kind of thing. This is primarily just about (laughs) our feelings and conversations. You know, I think there's an opportunity here. I, you know, I, I think it'll be fun. It'll be fun to try and get people to care um, and be sort of evangelists for some of these artists and songs. Or just give uh, a, just give them a listen. Give them that one stream. <laughs> send them like, what was it? Like 0.016 cents per stream. Right, right, <laughs> right. Just, you know, and, and, and even just like, just like a consideration, right? Like there are some songs that like are artists that I never would have given a second chance to, but like someone might have mentioned, oh, they did this one thing or, you know, they came at it from this one angle or you should really listen. Yeah. And if it was enough to get me to just consider reconsidering my preconceived notion then i i feel like it was good enough so you don't have to be a fan yeah and i think for me like it's exciting to hear someone else get excited and then to feel like i can participate in that discovery Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. for someone to get really excited about a song and say like oh like did you hear this song it's amazing you know and then to actually like you know for myself consider it and listen to it. it it's it for myself as like a pop culture enthusiast, it's, I, I like feeling a part of that experience, Yeah, you know, to be a part of the discovery of something or, or to be a part of someone else's discovery of something. It's, I think it's very powerful. So that in a rather large meandering nutshell is Flop Redeemer. Look out for our first official episode coming soon to well, whatever podcast platform you're currently listening to this on. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Flop Redeemer and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Flop Redeemer. Special thanks to Adam for providing our theme music and sound design. To our friends for listening to us gab fruitlessly about this for the past 18 months. 
and to our neighbors for remaining relatively quiet while recording this. We'll see you next time on Flopperdiner.